This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Over 500 people were murdered in Chicago last year. Most of these murders were concentrated in a few historically black neighborhoods on the west and south sides of the city. And most of the victims were under 30 years old. For many people listening to this show in the comfort of their home or car or while at the gym, it's probably difficult to grasp what such a high rate of murder and violence does, not only to those involved, but also the wider community. In some of these Chicago neighborhoods, the impacts from violence have been compounded by a raft of school closures. A WEB Chicago report found that since 2002, over 70,000 children, quote, the vast majority of them black, have seen their schools closed or all staff in them fired. In 2013 alone, 50 schools were closed, which was the largest intentional mass school closing in recent history. A lot of the schools that were closed down were schools that they had under enrollment. The schools were not full to capacity. They were not even 50% capacity. Because of all the gun violence, people are leaving Chicago and the schools as an end result suffered because they could not have, they could not secure the uh, minimum number of young people to go to the schools. My guest today is Tio Hardiman, president and founder of Violence Interrupters Incorporated and an adjunct professor of criminal justice. Tio is on the front lines of conflict resolution, restorative justice practices, and community organizing. He has seen what violence does to a community and the way it impacts and is impacted by schools. In our conversation, we talk about the history of violence in Chicago and what this means for children today. Tio Hardiman, welcome to Fresh Ed. Um, I'm really glad to be here. So can you just give me a quick overview of what's going on on Chicago's west and south sides? Well, when it comes down to what's going on on Chicago's west and south sides, when it comes as it relates to gun violence and some of the factions and the cliques out here, it's, it's just the violence is all over the place. There's no method to the madness. You have women being killed, children being killed, some babies, and you have the different cliques on the different blocks out here that used to be a part of a bigger you know, gang structure, but now you have factions, offshoots of the bigger gangs, and it's like uh, every man for, the, for themselves, like the wild, wild west, so to speak. That's what you have going on in Chicago right now. And how many you know, killings are we talking about in a given year? Well, on average in Chicago, you have anywhere from 600 to 700, well, put it like this, from 500 to 700 homicides every year in Chicago. Every every year, and it's unfortunate because at the beginning of the year, let's say January first of any year, we already expect that Chicago would surpass 500 homicides, and that's sad because the reality is that that means people will lose their lives, and uh, that's what's going on in Chicago. Well, I mean, I was uh, we're sitting in Chicago uh, today, and just last weekend while I was here, I saw in the paper that six people were killed and 28 or so were injured from gun violence. Right. But it, what's interesting is that it's concentrated mm -hmm. primarily in just a few neighborhoods, basically. Well, mainly in Chicago, you just have the history in the Inglewood community, the Austin area on the far west side, uh, the Chatham area, uh, Rosen in the way far south, and then the South Shore community. So Chicago has a what you might say an entrenched history, uh, so to speak. I use that word, but you know, the gang violence is or the factional violence is entrenched in the fabric of, of the minds of some of the young people that are involved in the violence. But the neighborhoods on the south and west side, uh, the history dates back to about 40 years ago. 
Really? So yeah, about 40 years ago when you had the establishment of the, the bigger gangs, like on the West side, you had the Vice Lord Nation, which uh one of the oldest gangs in Chicago in the African-American community. And then in the Inglewood community, that's like the birthplace of the gangster disciples. And then you had the birthplace of the Blackstones over in the Woodlawn community. So you have what you call uh, the gang lifestyle has been institutionalized with some of the people uh, here here today as we in present time. Because they, they grew up, their uncles were gang members. Uh, some of their grandfathers were gang leaders. So uh, the beat goes on and on for, for the next generation to come. But instead of young guys going to college as a rites of passage, some of the guys are going to, to the streets or to jail as a rites of passage. So what happened 40 years ago that these gangs were established to begin with? Well, if you look back in the history of Chicago, uh, there's two two uh, answers to that question. One is that uh, back in 1919, you had a race riot in Chicago where mainly some of the Irish uh, gang members over in uh, Bridgeport, Canaryville on the south, south side of Chicago, they were attacking African-American men in particular on a high level, which led to uh, the race riot. That's what actually led to the race riot. So a lot of the African-American gangs began to organize and unify. A lot of African-American young men began to organize and unify back then, but at, at the same time, what happened is that you had something going on simultaneously in the African-American community where a lot of guys began to turn on each other because it was about territorial issues, even with some of the African-American guys back then. They organized to fight the white gangs, but then they started fighting one another as time you know, moved on. So that's what led to the birth of the super black gangs. And what year is this? It's like 19, late 1970s? You're looking at the, uh, no, no, you're looking at the Late 1960s for the Vice Lords, the, like the mid 70s for the other gangs, like the Gangster Disciples, the Blackstones. So now Jeff Ford was the uh, leader of the Blackstone Rangers, mm-hmm. which at one time they probably had around five to ten thousand members. And I re- I use them numbers because some numbers are you have different numbers out there. But I know he had uh, thousands of guys that uh, looked up to him. He was their leader. Then Larry Hoover, the Gangster Disciples, became one of the biggest gangs in Chicago. Then the Black Disciple Nation and then Vice Lords. So, you know, what happened is that there was an opening for young. See, the, the reality is some guys go to work and become productive members of society. But when you have you growing up in poverty, some guys take the uh, the gang route of, of the street life. And that's what happened with the uh, birth of the gangs, because a lot of them began um, as uh, gangsters where they would just they tried to emulate Italian gangsters. A lot of black, uh, older black gangsters wanted to be like the uh, Dutch Schultz. They wanted to be like Lucky Luciano. They wanted to be like Al Capone. So they took on those personalities and roles in the black community. And then it, it turned and spiraled into like these big gangs. Oh, my gosh. And so today, when there's 500 plus murders every mm-hmm. year in Chicago, is this... You know, are these two rival gangs or multi multiple rival gangs? Are they the ones fighting each other that is causing all of this death? Or you know, how how is it playing out today? Well, the motives behind most of the violence that's playing out, let's say over the last ten years, it's the year twenty nineteen now. Since let's say two thousand, I say it's like a lot of clicks, a lot of revenge, vendettas from the from the past. Uh, a lot of uh, people, old people, debts. You got robbery all over the place. People killing about the females, uh, territorial disputes. I'm talking about block by block territorial disputes. I'm not saying so it's like big old areas because the different cliques run their blocks. So you have a lot of misunderstandings that leads to killings. Uh, you Like I say, revenge is, is one of the number one factors leading to the killings out here because somebody lost a loved one and they're going to exact revenge as soon as they can. So that's one of the leading causes of the problem. And the drug, believe it or not, the drug selling is not 
much as a factor like it used to be as far as the killings in the 80s and the 90s. See, you can clearly point to the drug distribution game in the 80s and the 90s because guys were making millions of dollars back then. But in today, in the year 2019, the fighting, you know, you got guys selling loose cigarettes, selling, you know, some cocaine, marijuana, heroin, but it's not like it used to be. Uh, the million dollar days are pretty much over now because mm -hmm. crack cocaine is pretty much, it's outdated now. People not smoking crack like they used to. Heroin, heroin addiction is back on the rise, but the reality is the gangs are not making the money they used to make. So what's causing it then? So is it just rivalry? Or is it's, it it's rivalry. It's reputation. Everybody wants to make a name for themselves. And, uh, you know, then you just got the issues. People got issues out here. Uh, some, right now in Chicago, 46% of African-American young men are unemployed, which means that the idle time is like a devil's workshop. And everybody's like, you know, peer pressure. They're giving in to peer pressure. They're giving in to like, we from this block, let's roll together. So you got a lot of, you got, what we like this, you have a lot of guys being misled in the community and it leads to their uh, premature deaths because they're involved with, put it like this, every clique has, let's say you have a clique of 20 guys, three or four out of the 20 are psychopaths. Those are the guys that are making it happen for the other, other 16 of the members of the clique. Those are the go-getters, all right? So you have people that are scared of the go-getters. They're part of the clique. The go-getters don't get killed all the time. The marginal people end up being shot and killed. But sooner or later, they catch up with the go-getters, you know, sooner or later. But it right. takes, see, homicide is the easiest crime to get away with. In Chicago, we have, you have a 9 to 14% homicide clearance rate. So which, which, what, what that means is that people get away with murder 86% of the time. Oh and gosh. it's easy to go shoot and kill somebody. It only takes four or five seconds and you're out of there. That's why you have such a high homicide uh, number in Chicago, because Chicago's not number one in the country. Believe it or not, it's St. Louis. Huh. It's number one in the country, but per 100,000 people. But Chicago, it, with all the money being spent on violence prevention and police overtime, there's no way in the world we should, we should still be at five or 600 homicides every year. Mm -hmm. Too much money has been spent to deal with this issue. Through the police department or well, through Yeah, other? no, I'm, I'm talking about through through violence prevention programs. Mm -hmm. See, this is the this is the biggest uh, trick out in the world. The police cannot stop killings on the front end because the police have not been trained to stop killings on the front end. The police have been trained to respond to violence. So after it yes. happens. You have to you know, the police get involved once a crime is committed. Right. Most of the organizations and this is not a criticism, I'm saying this because we have to be transparent. It's hard to deal with intercepting whispers on the ground level in order to stop a killing on the front end. So most of the community groups, they uh, come after the fact and they organize big marches. They say what they're going to do next to stop the next killing. So when the next killing takes place, now they say they need some more resources to get over in that area to uh, march again because they, everybody's coming after the fact. People are making a name for themselves about saying they're violence prevention experts because they come out and march in the community. A lot of people are doing just that. So my thing is, in order to stop a killing, and from my experience, I can't speak for nobody else. No matter what program, I'm the, pre I'm the president of Violence Interrupters, former director of Ceasefire Illinois, we stopped a lot of killings, and it wasn't so much based on the program. It was based on personal relationships with people. So if you have a relationship with these shooters out here, you can go to them personally and say, man, I need you to do me a favor and let that go. I'm asking you as your big brother to let it go because I talked to the other guy you want to kill, and he said, look, he's willing to let it go. So let me bring both of you guys to the table and I don't care how you got to talk about it. You can cuss each other out, do what you think you need to do to let the situation go. I'm asking you as your brother. So when you multiply T.O. Hardeman times 
50 violent center weapons that have personal relationships like like I have, you, you end up seeing a reduction in some of the killings and you stop it on the front end. So you, you mediate between these different rival cliques. Right. But that means you have to know all of these different rival cliques. Right. So you, you have a reputation on the ground in Chicago where right. you, you can name the, the head of these different cliques and be able to bring people together. I mean, that sounds like it must be at times quite dangerous. It's, it's a dangerous work. And I tell people all the time, uh, the kind of work, if you really want to stop killings, this this work is not for the faint at heart. Don't try this at home. We have a violence interruptor training. <laughs> but most important, uh, people fake all the time. So you're not going to stop a killing without a confrontation. People need to stop lying out here because no guy, nobody's just going to put their gun down because you talk to them and just because it's just a smooth conversation because it's two sides of every story out there. And that's why it's more important to stop the killing on the front end because once somebody's been shot and killed already, retaliation is almost 90% of the time. It, it may happen 90% of the time. So it's harder once you deal with uh, a death already. That's why with Violence Interrupters, we, I, I train my staff on how to intercept whispers once again so they can detect in advance what's about to occur. And then hopefully they have the right relationship to go in and stop it before somebody loses their life. Hmm. So that's think, what we do. Do you think the police department could ever do this? I think the police department, yes. And that's I, I love that question. Uh, I truly believe the police department can uh, mediate conflicts because the police know what everybody else knows. It's not. It's no secret. You have police intelligence. They know what's about to go on. They know who's all the key players. It's just a matter of the police establishing a meaningful relationship with some of them tough guys saying, look, we're not trying to get all the way into your business, but we would like to mediate this conflict. And you might feel safe about the police doing it. So I'm not against the police mediating conflicts as long as nobody gets caught up in no mess. And some people may not like that in the field of outreach work, but I think uh, we need all hands on deck right now. Mm. So I'm not opposed to the police uh, trying to stop killings on the front end. How did you get into this work. I mean, this is a very particular mm. work that requires mm. deep connections in multiple communities. It requires you to see violence, mm. try and mediate among violent people, sometimes probably see people get killed. How did you get into this type of work? Well, I basically was born and raised in the heart of the ghetto here in Chicago. I grew up on the south side and the west side of Chicago. Uh, the Avalon Park community on the south side, they call it Lion City, Lion City, that's what they call it. And I grew up in the Henry Horner Projects. So I grew up around psychopaths, dope fiends, prostitutes, pimps. I grew up around murderers. And I, like I said, I grew up around the element and I also grew up around business people. Everybody wasn't uh, running the streets back then, but I, the neighborhood I lived in was uh, notorious for um, a street life. You know, I've seen people get hurt. I understand the element oh so well. And uh, I can... Um, Vividly remember a story from the projects where when I was like around 22, I was uh, was going into the building where I live at and I stumbled upon a uh, a gang leader uh, back then who was intimidating a 13 year old kid. And the kid had uh, urinated on himself and they really scared this kid. And I said, you know, I need to say something. And it's not easy to say anything 
and those type of situations. So I stood up for the kid. I said, man, I'm not going to let you do nothing to this kid, man. And the guy was mad at me, man. You all in my business. I'm saying, well, look, I'm just in your business today because you are dead wrong. This little kid is scared as hell. He's petrified. I don't know what y'all trying to get him to do. He said, well, you in our nation business. I say, well, uh, I just have to be in your nation business today because that kid is a part of my nation. And I ain't talking about no gang. He's a part of the fucking black community. Excuse my language. He's a part of the black community. He needs to go home. That kid needs to go home. He just left from school. You guys trying to force him to do something that he does not want to do. So I took the kid with me, even though I put myself in danger, took the kid to his house. And when I got to his house, his mother was uh, strung out on drugs, no food in the refrigerator. And this kid, uh, we saved, saved him for that day. I don't know what happened to the kid years later, but it was really a remarkable, uh, it was a turning point in my life. So when you say, how, how did I get involved in the work? It's because I wanted to give something back to the community at large. And I knew that God had blessed me with the uh, discernment and the uh, aptitude to for this line of work. That's the best way I can describe it, because I feel I was anointed to go in there and really save lives because I've been in dangerous situations where most people would probably be shot and killed. So were yeah. you a part of any gang or any clique back then? I was never part of any gang. I never had the respect for gangs that way. I, I All my friends were involved in the gangs. I know all the gang members, I know all the gang leaders, but I never really, really respected. See, where I come from, a man is a man. That doesn't mean you're the toughest guy in the world, but I never want nobody telling me what to do. I didn't want nobody sending me off to do something I can do for myself. I didn't want nobody giving me no orders and stuff. Not, not that I'm the toughest guy in the universe, but I, I respect the guys because they see, see, it's two ways I'm saying this. When I say I don't have that, that much respect for the gang, because I saw a lot of the things they were doing that were, some of their actions were not right for the community, killing their own people, selling dope in the community, right? But at the same time, a lot of my friends were members of gangs, so I respected them as my friends. So when I talked to them, I never saw them as gang members. I saw, this is my little partner, uh, Ronnie. We grew up together. Right. This is my partner, John. I don't look at him as a gang member. I look at him as John. So I never really looked at them like that. And I got a uh, big brother respect from a lot of people. So I, it's like, no, I was. I never really wanted to be in no, uh, no uh, gang. What uh, about today? Can yeah. can a child today, growing mm -hmm. up in some neighborhoods in Chicago, decide like you did? Mm -hmm. You know what? No, I don't want to be part of a gang. Is that is that a possibility? Well, it's, it's hard nowadays because uh, you have to look at whether a child may live on a particular block where gang banging is going on. The cliques and the factions are really at an all-time high on some, some, some of these blocks out here, and they're very visible, and that child will stick out. So it's not like you can just go to school, come back, and not be at least harassed or bullied to a degree. So it's not as easy, but uh, you know, I hear stories every now and then, but it's, it's, it's just not easy because a lot of young guys are being shot and killed, and they, they have no affiliation whatsoever because they're just in an environment where it, right now the, uh, the cliques it's like a, it's, I'm not going to say the word epidemic, but it's more of a tribal understanding amongst a, a, a few people in the African-American community. Because the stories that are not portrayed in the media from Chicago are the stories of young men and women going to school every day, uh, you know, getting good grades, taking care of their business in life. But the shootings and killings get most of the headlines. Right. So it's, it's rare for a guy that's on the block with a, a serious block where you have everybody involved in the gangs or the cliques to escape that. It's, it's, he's guilty by association anyway, because if a neutron was to go down the street and there's another click and they say, what block are you from? I'm from the uh, 59th street block. They're going to associate you with them guys anyway. So you, you know, you can't win for losing 
Because if you go, you can't win. Let's say you're not involved in the click on your block, but you're from the block. Right. So the, your territory, right. your geography of where you're born matters. That's what makes it hard. Right. And is this primarily a male issue or are women, young girls also involved in these cliques? This is a deeply rooted male issue, but you have stories of women out here that are involved without a doubt, mm-hmm. but uh, not to the, to the uh, degree. See, back in the day, women, you had women that actually had positions in the gangs. They actually had, uh, some women were queens. Some women were like, they had um, different positions where, where they had some authority mm-hmm. in the gangs. You had women that were, they had their own clique within the overall gang. And the guys respected them, respected the women. So now you do have uh, women that are involved in the games, not to the de- degree that men are as far as who are, the men are the ones that are really totally involved in it. Right. So one of the things that I've read about Chicago mm-hmm. lately is the number of public school closings. Yes. I think it's over 50 schools have been closed in the last few years. Can you talk about what does this do mm-hmm. to communities in the South Side and the West Side? where these gangs are, are, are prevalent. What happens when you close a school? I mean, in other words, what is the value of a school mm-hmm. in communities? Well, you know, I stood up against Rahm Emanuel, the former mayor, when he came down to closing down the schools. But in retrospect, I'm not real crazy about Rahm Emanuel, but I looked at the totality of information that was presented and gathered. Uh, right now in Chicago, we have a black exodus. Over 180,000 African-American people have moved out of Chicago over the last 15, 20 years. So that that left a void. So a lot of the schools that were closed down were schools that they had under enrollment. The schools were not full to capacity. They were not even 50 percent capacity because of all the gun violence. People are leaving Chicago and the schools, as an end result, suffered because they could not have they could not secure the uh, minimum number of young people to go to the schools. So therefore, yeah, it definitely created a problem because the schools now kids, the schools were closed down. They transferred students to other schools in close proximity or somewhere on another side of, of town or whatever the case may, busting some students in here or there, and it led to a bloodbath in Chicago. There was an experiment called Renaissance 2010 in which they did close some schools down and transfer students, and it led to a lot of uh, Chicago public school students being shot and killed. But And why? What? Well, no, the that. rationale is this is what happens in academia, and you got these high-minded, you know, so-called professional administrators they're not looking at the carnage on the, on, the, on the ground level. They're looking at it from a standpoint as a business level where I need to make a business decision. But they're not looking at the fact that people are going to suffer at the bottom. Mm-hmm. That's what happened. It was, it was a way to save money. Mm-hmm. It was a way to kind of convert some schools that, that did not have full capacity. Mm-hmm. And, but they were not thinking about the different neighborhood conflicts when they uh, experimented with Renaissance 2010. So what are you saying? You're saying that because a, a child in one community mm-hmm. where a school's closed down, they get bused to another community, their sort of territorial neighborhood affiliation goes with them even to that new school? Yeah, go, well, a perfect example over in, uh, you can look this one up, Finger High School. Uh, there was a young man by the name of Darion Albert. He was beaten to death. I mean, they transformed a school called Carver High School into a military academy. And that was an Argyle Garden housing developments. So when the school was, was uh, converted to a military academy, the other students were transferred from Argyle Gardens to go to Finger High School. It was in an area called DeVille. So now the students over at Ar- from Argyle Garden were in automatic or instant conflict with the young students from the Ville area. 
So one day they were getting out of school uh, late September and there was a big riot that jumped off a big, big gang fight. It's all, it was, it went viral. And Darion Albert wasn't involved in any gang. He's walking out there because he's getting out of school. And next thing you know, he gets attacked and he gets, his head gets crushed in the ground. These guys had these big, big, gigantic two by fours and they crushed his head in the ground right on camera. That was the end result of, of converting a school and transferring students over to another community. That was an end result of that bad decision that was made by some of the administrators at the higher level with, with CPS. Nobody's going to cop to it, but the numbers are 150 students were actually killed during the Renaissance 2010 period. Now, in comes Rahm Emanuel after that. Now, this wasn't under Rahm Emanuel. Right. So Rahm decided to close, close the schools down. It was a business decision, but it was necessary. He took a lot of heat for it. But if you look back, the enrollment wasn't there. Is because people have moved, black people have moved out of Chicago. It's like a ghost town in some of those schools. Mm. And what ended up happening once he closed all these different schools down that didn't have a large enrollment? Did you see any similar phenomenon like you did under Renaissance? It's been on, the, yeah, the, the violence has been ongoing anyway. Because anytime you transfer students to another area, that area has their, their own block by block dynamics. And so, inside the school, you're saying yeah, these yeah. block by block by dynamics. Enter schools. They spill over in the schools, and everybody knows the, uh, the the layout. All the students know what to expect, what to do, what lane to stay in. So, how young are we talking when children know mm. and are participating in this sort of social system? Well, as young as eleven and twelve years old, people know uh, the tribal conditions of their block. They have to know to be aware, to be alive. You can lose your life because you, you say the wrong thing, you're associated with the wrong person, and you know you have people out here that just they, they're not wrapped too tight. Right. It's taking a group of young people from one tribe or clique, even if they're not active members in right. that tribe or clique, right. and putting them in another school. And mm. just by being around mm -hmm. another group from a different clique, you're going to have violence. Yeah, you're going to have violence because people are not, they're not ready to uh, assimilate. I use mm. that word, assimilate with everybody else. And people are stuck in their ways, stuck in their tribal um, understanding of how things mm -hmm. supposed to go. See, that's why it's important to help young people think on a higher level because a lot of times they get stuck on the block. What's happening on my block? So therefore, you're like an invader to our space because I've been, a lot of young guys, they've been uh, taught to believe they have a space out there. That's one of the main reasons why I don't believe that violence anymore, that violence spreads as an infectious disease because some people are, are taught violent behavior at an early age. The way to settle conflicts is with violence. What happens with the issue of violence, especially murder, it's a condition of a mind. What happens is that some people, it's been scientifically proven that some people have a small empathy gland in their brain, which they cannot feel the hurt and pain of anybody. They cannot empathize when they go out and kill somebody or hurt somebody. So it's not a disease. It's more of what you might say. It's learned behavior. The first thing that goes through any man or woman's mind, if someone was to hit you, the very first thought that comes to your mind is, I'm going to kill this guy. Even though you may not kill because that's not what you do. But so therefore, it's a natural thought process because killing has been around since the beginning of time. So, so yeah. It's, so, okay. So on the one hand, violence is sort of a behavior that is somehow natural to humans. But on the other hand, there's learned behavior and experiences that sort of socialize groups of people into being violent. So in that latter mm. case, right. you know, if, if we're looking at Chicago and we're saying that 
there are certain communities that have been extremely violent and it's it's sort of intergenerational right it's it's sort of being passed down um, over time it's a socially constructed process what do you do about it right like so as someone you know both intellectually from that academic standpoint but also on the ground what do you do you know I, I understand attacking violence on the front end that makes sense but is this situation always going to ha- you know mm. be the case or you know how do we well, begin to solve this this problem well I plan to give you the, the real deal answer nobody wants to hear this but I just have to be honest uh, the only way you're really going to stop the killing in Chicago the black man has to unify in major major numbers I'm talking about 50,000 strong for one entire year and we have to hit the, these blocks and go talk to all the tribes out there, not go out there and make them do nothing, not to go out there and intimidate them. Let them know we need to bring all these issues to the table before somebody takes a life and it's time to stop. It's over with. If you really want to be technical about it, it's over with. The black man has to rise up, talk to his people. I'm talking about every day for one entire year until we get everything under control and we have to stop the uh, outside forces from um, influencing uh, the young, like some of the people that deal illegal guns and the legal gun trade in our community and the illegal uh, drug trade that's really hitting our community. Uh, President Nixon, uh, you know, a blast from the past. Some of his uh, former aides are finally uh, talking about how the failed war on drugs was really aimed at African-American people. So our community has been devastated by a lot of different outside influences that hurt us as far as our progress. So now it's going to take the black man. To, I'm not talking about no special program because people, black death has become a hustle. People making money off black death, police doing a lot of overtime. I'm not against the police. Uh, I, I will never uh, say anything anti-police, but what I will say is that the police cannot stop the killing. It's been proven. So the reality is that if the black man was a unified, you can stop it all. And to go to show you violence is not a disease because if the black man unifies and tell these young guys to stop it for real, cut it out, they're going to stop it. They're, they're going to stop it. So if it was a disease, but why is it, if it was a disease, let me also uh, strengthen my argument about violence, not, gun violence not being a disease. Let's strengthen the argument here. So why is it that if I'm walking down the street as a black man, uh, another black man is more likely to shoot me and kill me. But if a white man is walking down the street in the black community, 9.9 times out of 10, he will not be shot and killed. So if it was a disease, what is it, a selective thinking disease? <laughs> Just think about it. Is it selective thinking? Uh, whereas, and, and it's a case in point on the west side of Chicago, you have a community called Oak Park. It's like a suburban area of the west suburbs. You have the Austin community. Nobody crossed, and then Austin, Oak Park is, is one block across the street from Austin. Oak Park is one block across the street. Nobody's shooting and killing in Oak Park. Yeah. Somewhere in the minds of the people, they keep it on this side of Austin in Chicago. So if violence was a disease, why is there a cutoff switch? I mean, that segregation is amazing in Chicago. I drove down into Oak Park and you you instantly see the difference, feel the difference. It looks like a different world all of a sudden. That's my main point. See, so if violence was a disease, why is it that the perpetrators of the violence, they have a cutoff? They know what to do and what not to do. Right. And so obviously... You know, some of these neighborhoods that you just described, yeah. this, you know, Oak Park and some of the, the surrounding <clears throat> communities and neighborhoods and how they're just so different and how behavior changes, right. you know, between these different communities. Obviously, we have to also then consider the intersection of violence and cliques and gangs mm. with housing policies that are racist, the, the segregation that has been mm. sort of state perpetuated the segregation of schools, of communities. And it seems like Chicago is just 
when I walk down the streets of Chicago, it's so apparent to me that there is just racial segregation pretty much in every community. Well, Chicago is one of the most segregated cities in the United States, without a doubt. But you also have to take in consideration in the black community, and I'm speaking because I'm African-American, is that um, we are more, we are segregated in races against one another as well. So, and, and that's the end result of the fact that we see each other, we don't see each other as the same people. That's what that comes down to. So uh, whatever happened to our ancestors when we were fighting the Irish and all that, some kind of way we turned on ourselves. And that's more like a, like I say, a tribal puzzle that we have to kind of solve in order to kind of pull it back together and find out where we went wrong. And I think where we uh, went wrong as a people, uh, you had to go back to the plantation. Nobody wants to talk about this stuff, but the plantation dictated a system where if you were seen pretty cool with the master, you may get some benefits. And now the people that were in the field that never received the benefits of drinking some lemonade or sitting on the master's porch in the master's rocking chair, eating some of the master's food, they picked up automatic resentments against the people that had favor from the master. The reality is that um, the tribalism took place on the plantations with African people. Now, a lot of our people did good after slavery and then they moved on, but there's a certain segment of the population that gets stuck in the psychological chains chain of slavery. So we don't look at each other as the same people. Mm-hmm. They split us up, even though a lot of Africans were brought over to America from some of the same tribes, but by us losing our language, losing our identity and losing our culture, we were shifted, man. We were all over the place. So now the master... They did a good job of turning black folks against each other. And it was important because in order for them to maintain a hold on you in slavery, they could not allow you to unify. So hence why you're saying this unification of the African-American community Mm. as a way to really, truly begin to inter- Yeah, that ends it. Interviolence. It ends it because then you got black men. And and don't take the statement the, the wrong way to people that are listening. I'm talking about guerrilla black men. I'm talking about intellectual black men, businessmen. I'm talking about parents, grandfathers. I'm talking about everybody plays a role. But you need some guerrilla black men with some serious backbone that are going to say, young men, it's over. Whatever you were fighting for, whatever issues you have with that young guy there, it is over, buddy. And we're about to take over our community and we're not going to come down on you. What we're saying is give us an opportunity to work with you. We are real serious and we are real men today. So no matter what your excuses may be, we got you, brother. And you got to come with us. Well, Tia Hardiman, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed and best of luck with the unification. <laughs> thank you. Okay, brother. Tio Hardiman is president and founder of Violence Interrupters Incorporated and an adjunct professor of criminal justice. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please consider rating us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, and Lushik Waba. Fatih Akhtas is our researcher, and Ing Jung Cho is our content developer. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.